This is 15-Minute History, a podcast for educators, students, and history buffs featuring the minds and talents of the University of Texas at Austin. 15-Minute History is a partnership of Not Even Past and Hemispheres in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Hi, I'm Joan Neuberger, and I am your host for this episode of 15-Minute History. And we are back with Chris Rose. Hi, Chris. Hi, how are you? Uh, In part one of this podcast, we were talking about the colonization of the Middle East by European powers. Right. And we got almost as far as World War One. Right. So what were give us a little recap and then and then let's talk about World War One. Well, we started talking about the the naval powers or the naval rivalry between Spain and the Ottoman Empire over the course of of the 15th, 16th and 17th century. And uh the Barbary pirates, how France got into Algeria basically to put them down and then decided to, to hang around Algeria. And we ended by talking about how Egypt basically became an autonomous province of the Ottoman Empire uh, in the 19th century with a lot of help and then winding up being colonized by, by Britain uh, at the end. So by the eve of World War I, the Ottoman Empire was really the sick man of Europe, as it was called at the time. Absolutely. Uh, Russia's power was increasing. It was allied with France economically and uh, with Britain uh, in in the war. And Turkey was allied with Germany and Austria-Hungary. Right. And what's the impact of World War I on, on the whole picture of colonization? So Britain and France begin encouraging what becomes known as the Great Arab Revolt, in which Egypt and what is now greater Syria, Syria, Jordan, Lebanon, Israel, and the Palestinian areas, as well as Iraq, are encouraged to revolt and basically open up a second front behind the Ottoman Empire that will divert them away from uh, trying to protect their territory from Russia. And these are the battles that are dramatized in Lawrence of Arabia, the great David Lean epic. Absolutely. And what's interesting about that is Lawrence of Arabia was, T.E. Lawrence was assigned to the Hashemites, who ruled out of Mecca and are now Interestingly enough, descendants of that are are the royal family of Jordan. They moved, and that was part of the whole settlement afterwards. Britain agreed to support independence for all of these countries. Um, However, Britain and France worked out a different agreement, uh, the Sykes-Picot Agreement of 1916, which was signed in secret. And it divided the region into areas that looked really good to the colonial offices in London and Paris, but made absolutely no sense on the ground. For example, there there are two countries that really sort of epitomize the colonial mindset. One is Jordan and the other is Lebanon. Lebanon was created as a safe haven for the the Christians of the region. Um, And it was literally split off from Syria on the basis that the French decided that Christian and Muslim should not be living together. What they accidentally did was they created a country that had no majority population at all. It was a country made up entirely of a plurality of minority populations, which is one of the reasons why they've been there have been internal skirmishes ever since. In addition to which, uh, at the time and, and for a long time after that, the Muslim population really just wanted to be part of Syria again. Jordan, by contrast, was created specifically because as part of the agreements that Lawrence of Arabia worked out, Two sons of the ruler of the Hejaz were promised kingdoms. One was supposed to become the king of Iraq, which he did. They were deposed in a a revolution in the 1950s. The other was supposed to become king of Syria. Well, under the Sykes-Picot Agreement, Syria went to the French as a protectorate. So Britain couldn't promise that to them. So they literally took out the map, drew 
some lines on it. And this is where Jordan originates. They literally had to come up with a kingdom to give this guy. He was marching to Damascus with his army. They met him at the train station in Amman and said, hey, guess what? This is your new kingdom. Um, and literally, that, that's why Jordan was created. It's similar to the Scramble for Africa, which we have another 15-minute history Right, episode absolutely. On. I mean, and, and so they, they really just were not following any ethnic or geographic lines um, when they did this. At the end of the war, uh, Turkey basically was given just very embarrassing conditions for peace. It was to be partitioned. If the plan had gone through, the Dardanelles would have been an international zone patrolled by the League of Nations. Greece got a lot of territory. France got a lot of territory. Russia got a lot of territory, part of which was supposed to be a homeland for the Armenians. And what would have been left for Turkey would have been a landlocked area right in the center of the plateau around modern Ankara, about a quarter of the size of the modern nation. Turkey refused to accept the terms, uh, and they wound up fighting a very long war with their neighbors. Um, and this was finally resolved in 1923 uh, and the Treaty of Lausanne, uh, which establishes the borders of modern Turkey. Um, and it also, in which Turkey f- acknowledged the loss of territories outside those borders that had been part of the Ottoman Empire. Germany and Austria-Hungary, of course, had, had their own issues, um, but Turkey was able to sort of re regain itself and, and create a republic over the course of which the Ottoman Sultanate was abolished and the position of Caliph of Islam, which the Ottoman Sultan had held, was also abolished. Turkey became a modern republic, which we still see. So what's the situation after World War One in terms of uh, who's still colonized by France and Britain? Who's independent? Well, nominally, (laughs) everybody's independent, but there are a lot of mandates going on. So Morocco is a French protectorate. Algeria is annexed into France. Uh, Actually, northern Morocco, uh, right along the the coast uh, opposite Spain, is, is a Spanish protectorate, but it's considered Spanish Morocco. Tunisia is a French protectorate. Libya, interestingly enough, was colonized by Italy uh, very late, um, because up until uh, the early 20th century, no one really cared about Libya because it doesn't have many resources. They, they still didn't know about oil at the time, and, and Libya basically was, was annexed because Italy needed a country in order to make itself an empire. Um, so it, there was a quick colony. Egypt uh, and what is now Israel, the Palestinian territories, Jordan and Iraq are all British protectorates. And Lebanon and Syria are French protectorates. Cyprus is under British rule. Yemen is under British rule. Basically, anything with a coastline is being argued over. Ironically, of course, the only indigenous area that manages to assert itself is the center of Saudi Arabia, or or what is now Saudi Arabia. The Saud family takes over everything in the 20s and creates the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, which everyone's happy to let them do because, again, they didn't know about oil. And the the Saudi family just wasn't much of a threat at the time. Mm -hmm. So this is where we are as we get into World War II. Turkey decided to remain neutral this time, uh, I think for obvious reasons, because they lost so badly in World War I. The Germans, uh, when they invade France, take over the possessions of North Africa. And from there, they attempt to get control of the Suez Canal. This is Rommel's Africa campaign. Um, One of the things that they did was they promised independence to Egypt if they agreed to assist. But they were turned back at El Alamein, which is about an hour west of Alexandria. But the Middle East and North Africa really isn't a major theater in the war. However, the war has a huge impact 
on the region. Mainly because the two colonial powers afterwards are bankrupt, and they kind of need to get out of the business of being empires as quickly as, as humanly possible. This is particularly true of Britain. I mean, Britain, Britain was, was, was utterly bankrupt at the end of the war. You know, they were receiving food aid from the United States and Argentina, you know, in 1946. But, and, and they were just in a rather desperate financial situation. In Jordan and Iraq, it really just involved sort of handing the keys to the government palace over and saying, hey, guess what? You're now independent. Um, the Palestinian situation in the Palestine Mandate was, of course, much more complicated because there had been Jewish migration to the region since the late 19th century. Even before World War II, the, the, the Jewish and Arab populations in the Mandate were vying for control and fighting with each other. Um, and very similar to what happened in India, Britain basically drew a bunch of lines on the ground and announced, we're leaving. And they just sort of pulled up stakes and left, uh, let go and let God. And, you know, that that's, of course, a much longer story that would take up uh, its own podcast episode. But one of the reasons why they s- precipitously pulled out of Palestine was because they just, they couldn't no longer afford the expense of keeping such a large military force there. Um, and what, so then what about France? France uh, took a little longer to, uh, to decide that it was willing to part with its colonies. Um, Morocco and Tunisia got independence relatively quickly, but they really wanted to hold on to Algeria. And starting in 1954, the Algerians themselves, the Algerian Arabs, started fighting back. There was an eight-year war, very long, very bloody, very costly to France. And finally, independence was was negotiated in 1962. Um, And one of the reasons why they didn't want to give it up is because by this point, there were a million French citizens living in Algeria. They were born there. In many cases, their parents were born there. And so it was, it was a very difficult decision for France to decide that they were going to withdraw from, from this colony. Yeah, they didn't really withdraw, right? I mean, the Algerians really won. The Algerians won, correct. It was a war. France lost. And uh, you see French influence in Morocco and Tunisia, but not to the extent that you see it in Algeria. Um, you know, there are a certain class of, of people in all three countries who only speak French, even though they're Arab, mm-hmm. uh, because the French really left their mark. So yeah, it was it was a long, bloody decision for for France to pull out pull out of Algeria. What happens in in Lebanon? This really complicated, ethnically complicated country. Well, again, France withdraws, and one of the great problems uh, was that Syria never really recognized Lebanese independence. Um, Lebanon wanted to be an independent country, but uh, in 1958. There is uh, a conflict because the Muslim population of the country wants to have one set of laws, the Christian populations, who, by the way, none of them can get along with each other because you have Shiites, you have Sunni, you have Druze, you have Christian Catholics, you have uh, Orthodox Christians, um, you have a small Jewish population, and they're all at odds with one another. So we see an outbreak in 1958, and then the devastating civil war between 1975 and 1990, which ironically, as part of the settlement, the Syrian army went in and then refused to leave, Mm -hmm. um, and they were finally expelled. in in 2005. Um, but so that, that's been a very, very, very long process there. France got out of there. Um, so it wasn't about the French like it was in Algeria. But the, the legacy of Lebanon's creation remains. 
This is probably a good place to also bring up Cyprus. Mm -hmm. Um, It's usually considered part of Europe. It is part of the EU. Um, But uh, it was an Ottoman possession when Britain took it over in 1878. And the country is two-thirds Greek, ethnically, one-third Turkish. And when Britain actually held on to it until 1960, literally because they couldn't decide what to do with it. Britain wanted Cyprus to be independent. Turkey was arguing that it was a possession and needed to be returned. Greece wanted it to be unified. And again, the independence agreement that they had was so restrictive that literally nothing could happen in Cyprus that the governments of Turkey... Britain and Greece didn't agree with. And so, <laughs> Easy to see why that's a problem. This is a problem. This is a huge problem. And so uh, after independence, uh, there is, there's, there's a lot of, of ethnic tensions. There's a lot of ethnic violence. There's a skirmish in 1963. Um, there's a coup in 1974 that deposes the, the president of Cyprus, and he's replaced with somebody who wants to unify the country with Greece. And so shortly thereafter, the Turkish army invades to prevent that from happening. And, and this is actually still the situation on the ground. Mm-hmm. It's uh, split. It's split between uh, the independent South, which is at this point almost uniformly Greek speaking, um, and a Turkish occupied North, which declared independence in 1982, although that independence is only recognized by Turkey. Uh, the rest of the world uh, regards the area as occupied. Well, okay, now our final question is really a huge question, but what, what are the legacies of, um, of colonization and decolonization in the Middle East? A lot of countries were left with relatively authoritarian governments uh, in the region. Uh, Unlike in India or parts of Africa, uh, there was uh, these countries were protectorates, mandates. The Europeans weren't there to teach them to be modern countries. They were there basically to extract resources, if if we want to be perfectly honest with it. And local systems were left in place that tended to be rather authoritarian. uh, And they weren't replaced. After uh, independence, a lot of them turned to socialism because colonial administrations provided everything through the state. And so this was assumed that this is what a country had to be. And the ironic thing about this is the only countries in the region that are actual representative democracies with some degree of freedom that we would recognize are countries that did it by themselves, Israel and Turkey. And then, of course, both halves of Cyprus are also uh, parliamentary democracies. But they did it all themselves. It wasn't a system that was left in place by by European powers. Um, And of course, as we examined in an earlier episode, this sort of authoritarian rule leads to extremism over time. The other thing that, that, that we see is, and again, this is similar to the situation in India, uh, the infrastructure developed in these countries was frequently based on import-export, i.e. getting stuff to the port so that it could be taken to Europe. Um, it wasn't necessarily made for uh, ease of getting from one end of a country to the other. The Middle East, we don't see them suffering as much as Africa because the countries are geographically smaller. But to this day, it's still easier to move along the Algerian coastline than it is to go over the Atlas Mountains all the way down to the borders of Niger and Chad um, in in the deep desert, because, you know, that's the way that that infrastructure was designed during the era of colonialism. Uh, To benefit France. To benefit France, exactly. Um, And as I mentioned, the only real exception to this was Egypt, which was, you know, poised, except, of course, then it mired itself in debt that it never quite recovered from. Um, The other thing that we see a lot of is unequal distribution of resources, particularly among ethnic groups. The European uh, powers tended to employ a local class or an ethnic group as their proxy on the ground. Um, 
So, for example, uh, Coptic Christian businesses in Egypt tended to be preferred by British. Uh, the Maronites were preferred over others in Lebanon by the French and uh, the Greek over Turk in Cyprus. And in countries that didn't have large Christian minorities, they would then go with you know, a particular ruling family uh, to act on their behalf. And quite frequently, what this means is that uh, there's a small percentage of the population that controls a large percentage of the resources. Um, so, for example, even though um, you know the Christian population of Egypt is around 15%, uh, they control a much larger percent of businesses, and uh, the numbers of Christians who are upper and middle class are higher than there are for Muslims. Um, and like we saw in the Balkans in the 1990s, the quote-unquote ethnic and religious tensions that have resulted out of that are quite frequently not actually about ethnicity or religion at all. They're about unequal status and power. The fact that somebody was favored all along the way, and now we're trying to basically make that make that even out. You know, this isn't to say that, you know, particularly uh, in the situation in Egypt, where, you know, there are now ultra-conservative zealots, that, you know, some of this isn't actually based on religion, but a large part of it really is motivated by things that are much deeper than who goes to which religious institution on which day of the week. All right, good. Thank you, Chris, very much. Thank you. You can find a transcript of this episode, along with supplemental documents, suggestions for further reading, and correlations to this Texas and National Educational Standards for History and Geography on our website, blogs.utexas.edu backslash 15-minute history. That's the numerals 1-5-minute history. You can also find a link to suggest topics for upcoming episodes. The University of Texas at Austin is a free speech campus. Opinions and viewpoints expressed in episodes of 15-minute history do not represent the official position of the University of Texas or of any of its colleges or departments. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.